Listener Production. For years, she was known only as Jane Doe. But today, she's a household name. The 2021 Australian of the Year is Grace Tame. Grace is an artist, an illustrator, marathon runner and yoga teacher. She is also leading the fight for survivors of sexual abuse to be allowed to tell their own stories. All survivors of child sexual abuse, this is for us. Almost 10 years ago, Grace Tame was sexually abused by her high school maths teacher. While journalists and the media were permitted to talk about her legal case, Grace wasn't. Laws in Tasmania prevented her from speaking publicly about her abuse. The teacher who maintained a six-month-long sexual relationship with a 15-year-old student has been sentenced to two and a half years in jail. The damage it has caused many aspects of her life is profound. She feels guilt and shame, as well as responsible for the impact on her family. But in 2019, Grace won a Supreme Court exemption that allowed her to say what had happened to her, to speak her truth. The people who have the best insights into the psychological manipulation are the victims themselves. So for the purpose of education, I think it's really important. It's been a long and arduous road to recovery, but Grace is a survivor. And now she is speaking up on behalf of others, fighting to remove laws that still exist, which gag victims from publicly speaking about what's happened to them in both Tasmania and the Northern Territory. We are on the precipice of a revolution whose call to action needs to be heard loud and clear. That's right, you got it. Let's keep making noise, Australia. Next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. But now, here is my interview with the extraordinary Grace Tame. And just a warning that Grace and I speak about sexual assault and sexual abuse, including of children. So if you have little ears around or that's something you'd prefer not to hear, then please head back to the listener app and find something else that suits you. Grace, you've got a tattoo on your right hand that says, eat my fear. What does that mean? I have a lot of tattoos that I got, you know, during a time when I didn't respect my body because I had been taught to disrespect my body because people had disrespected my body repeatedly. So even though that the meaning behind the, the, the tattoo on my hand, eat my fear, is a positive one, it's about, you know, acknowledging um, negativity that's out there, whether that's in the form of a fear or, or something else, you know, and, and, and swallowing that, literally consuming that and converting it into something positive that can be your driving force. So even though that's the case, I am a little bit embarrassed by some of my tattoos, I suppose. I read that phrase in the newspapers and just thought, what an incredible symbol of survival, of pushing past horrible things that have happened to you to do good things, which you have done. You've had such an incredible impact. You've now become the Australian of the year. Can you tell us about that moment and that acceptance speech and how you were feeling in those minutes after you found out? In the moment, um, oh, so many emotions because it wasn't just an isolated thing. You know, anyone who wins a, a, an award or, or is acknowledged for work they've done obviously has a, has a history behind that work and mine has a personal history. When I looked out into the audience, 
you know, and I was full of emotion clearly. So was everyone else. And it was positive. It was like a collective sigh of relief was being breathed, which is so important because this silence that has pervaded for so long around sexual abuse, especially child sexual abuse, because of that silence, we have become a little bit divorced from our common sense and our common humanity because we haven't been opening up and sharing with each other around taboo issues. Mm, It sounds like a completely overwhelming moment and yet you managed to give the most powerful speech I've heard from an Australian of the year in a very long time. Can you tell us about when you first learnt that by pursuing legal action in court you were no longer permitted to speak about what you'd experienced publicly. Do you remember when you learnt that? I do remember that when I learnt that. So to go back a little bit, I was in the process of working with Nina Fennell, the incredible freelance journalist who's done a lot of groundbreaking work in in the area. So Nina and I were working using my case, using my story as kind of the foundation of a series of articles that would be really educative, um, especially about issues like grooming. And right before we were ready to share those articles publicly, it was brought to Nina's attention that there was a law in Tasmania that prevented survivors of child sexual abuse from self-identifying in the media, even after they turned 18 and even with their consent. So that was a huge setback because abuse itself is characterized by a complete loss of power and control. Um, You know, it's very degrading. You are manipulated. You are silenced. That's the theme that sort of underpins the abuse. And so to learn that that disempowerment was further reinforced at, at, at the actual structural level, you know, by legislation, was another form of abuse in of itself. You know, it was, it was incredibly re-traumatising. I was at a loss of what to do, you know, and, and, and Nina created this campaign and I gladly lent my case to it. There were 16 other brave survivors who lent their cases as well along the way as we as we continued to, to campaign. That just seemed like a no-brainer to me, you know, and I was granted a special exemption before the law actually changed. I was given my voice, but it never crossed my mind to stop there once I had my voice. It was always about giving the power back to um, survivors as a whole, you know, as a whole community. Can you tell us about the Let Her Speak campaign and the work you've been doing? Yeah, so Nina Fennell and I started working together in 2017. I was connected with her after a series of injustices that played out in relation to my case. So to go back a little bit, um, my perpetrator went to prison uh, not only for the crimes that he committed against me but also for possession of child exploitation material. He had, um, you know, 28 multimedia files of child pornography on his computer when the police investigated him. And he served only a year and nine months of his two-year and ten-month sentence. After he was released from prison, he was granted a federally funded scholarship to study at the University of Tasmania, which is the only university in my home state. And while he was studying, 
he went on Facebook in a public forum and boasted about the crimes that he committed against me. And those comments uh, were thrust into the media spotlight as well, which was very re-traumatizing. Now that happened in about 2015. As time went on and more people became aware of his presence on campus, understandably, there was a lot of backlash from the students because he was also put into student accommodation with 17 and 18-year-old students. And this is a man with a with a history of predatory behaviour. That's uh, almost unbelievable to hear, isn't yeah, it? It's really quite, and this is, again, this is after he'd been to prison. And now I have to obviously um, acknowledge the fact that I believe it's important for people who've committed crimes of impulse or, you know, people who've committed crimes and, and are remorseful, um, you know, for them to have opportunities just like everyone else in terms of reintroduction to society. But this is a man who has repeatedly demonstrated that when given opportunities, he will abuse them. This is also a very well-educated man. It's not as if he needed credentials to help him reintegrate into societies. I held a master's degree already. He was a, you know, a well-respected teacher at an elite private girls' school who, yeah, demonstrated that, that he just took advantage of that position and took it for granted. So there were, there were sort of a series of injustices that really led to me feeling as though there were just so many gaps in society, in our collective understanding, that we're allowing predators to keep manipulating everyone, mm. um, whether that was in the form of minds or in the form of institutions. So Nina and I connected and, 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 and that was the aim, was to shed sort of light on these things. So she um, dreamed up that this campaign and we just relentlessly campaigned using our stories as examples. You know, what goes on behind closed doors? What does grooming actually look like? And therefore, how can we prevent this from happening? But how can we be better equipped to spot examples of when a predator is actually just manipulating all of us and charming all of us? Within a month of you receiving the Australian of the Year award, a young woman staffer in the federal government called Brittany Higgins has come forward with some allegations that she was raped in Parliament House and other women have made similar allegations since. What kind of culture has to exist in order for a sexual assault or a rape to take place in a work or a school in a structured institutional environment like that? The current cultures that we have, unfortunately, the uh, the cover up culture is not unique to Parliament. So often we see institutions valuing policies above people um, and institutions above individuals, and that's been the case for a long time. That's evidence of the fact that I was sort of trying to drive home earlier, and that is that grooming, this psychological manipulation, is a cornerstone of all corruption. Um, it's about abuse of power, you know, and you see it in big businesses as well, uh, monopolising businesses, capitalising on, on, on the weakness or vulnerabilities of smaller businesses, you know. It's a pattern that we see everywhere from the smallest to the biggest scale. These young women, including Brittany Higgins, who've made these public allegations, are going to be on the front pages of newspapers and websites and on the TV news for weeks, if not months and years to come. You've had some experience of being a survivor 
in the media. And I know that you know it can be useful as a tool of campaigning, but also re-traumatizing. What would your advice be to them? To the media or to survivors? (laughs) Both. Okay. Well, to survivors, first and foremost, you know, it's not your fault. We believe you um, and you're not alone. But your voice is your power and remember that. Tell your truth on your terms. Don't allow yourself to be bullied. And to the media, you know, we're all learning. We need to hold each other to account, but we don't need to do it in an adversarial way. So as grateful as I am for the media, you know, I would never complain about being given this platform because it is a remarkable opportunity. But in saying that, you know, there does need to be an understanding that there is a marked difference between allowing survivors to share their stories and repeatedly expecting survivors to relive their trauma without their consent, not on their terms, at any time, at any place that the media wants them to because that is not listening to survivors. That's commodifying them and exploiting their pain, whether it's for ratings or sensationalised, you know, journalism. So that there needs to be some education around that, I think. Yes, I understand that the media wants to hear aspects of a survivor's story in order for us to foster empathy and, and understanding. But there is also a danger that as a collective, we will become sort of trapped in a cyclical negative narrative um, when in reality survivors have so much, I mean, people have so much more to offer than their stories. And, and that is in the form of educative insights that are born of lived experience. You know, we're so much more than our stories. They're just a small part of us. That's something that I really want to hammer home. Give the power to survivors, you know, and if they don't want to answer a certain question, it's not because they're being difficult. It's because it's really a re-traumatising thing. You know, the emotional brain, which is kicked into gear when you're brought back even by a simple question about your past, the emotional brain that kicks into gear, it overrides your logic. It doesn't discern between past and present and it doesn't discern between imagination and reality. I've been live on national television when I've been pulled right back into a dark place and I can't see. Even though I'm talking and and presenting as though I'm completely fine, I'm in overdrive just trying to function and I can hear my sentences getting chopped up in my head and I – um, my, you know, heart's going through the roof and I start to want to physically push things away because I feel like I'm being attacked. And that's just, that's just my experience, you know. Everyone has their own experience as well, you know. Grace, it can take a, a lifetime or longer to heal from the kind of abuse that you've just described, that slow, deliberate, calculated, controlling abuse. What's helped you? Oh, so many things. Um, Love, first and foremost, you know, despite the tension that was created by this predator between myself and my my loved ones, you know, the unconditional love that they have provided throughout this whole time has been such a source of of healing and strength for me. And I'm incredibly grateful to, you know, my mom, my dad, my step-parents, my beautiful partner, Max, who, who I'm madly in love with. And this happened to me when I was 15 as well. Like, I was still a child and not only was I finding myself, in finding myself, I was taught to hate myself. And so it's only been in the last couple of years really that I have leaned into self-care and and started, you know, taking up hobbies that I loved to do when I was a kid and reconnecting with nature and 
yeah, doing that sort of stuff, like positive, adaptive coping mechanisms. Grace, I know you work as an artist and illustrator. You're also a runner and a yoga teacher, and you're now the Australian of the year. What would 15-year-old you say if she saw you now? I can imagine she'd be pretty impressed. I don't know. 15-year-old me, that's, I think that's hard. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing for me to, to, to go and, and immediately look back on my 15-year-old self and think of what, what, what I might say because I'm so far from that time. It's so foreign, that, that mindset to me, that the time back then was a world of pain that I couldn't see beyond. You know, one of the hardest things for me now is, is as a 26-year-old woman, meeting 15-year-old children. Um, and seeing how just how vulnerable they are, you know, regardless of whether or not they have added vulnerabilities, but just in the, the purity of and in the innocence of being 15 and being physically smaller, our brains aren't developed at 15. You know, that's science, that's fact of life. So it is, it's, it's hard for me to answer that question. Grace, thank you for your lessons for everyone listening, for the work you're doing on behalf of survivors, but also on behalf of a community who need to better understand how these crimes are perpetrated. And thank you so much for those lessons for the media, as you've summed up. Oh, no worries. It's my pleasure. It really is. And, you know, as hard as it can be, it's a wholly regenerative thing. Um, You know, it gives back, you know, a thousandfold even if it's just one outreach from a survivor, you know, that, that makes all the difference. It's, this is so worthwhile and I'm very happy to be the one making the first steps here. If you want to speak to someone about any of the issues that this episode brings up, then you can call 1-800-RESPECT or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now it is time for The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. Tate, I'm thinking of going to the movies this weekend. What should I go and see? This one you don't even have to leave your house for. You can watch it at home. It's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's her biopic that follows her from her days at Harvard Law School into becoming a Supreme Court justice and making history for her fight for gender equality. Last week, I was told women are too emotional to be lawyers. Then that same afternoon, that a woman graduating top of her class must be a real ball buster and wouldn't make a good colleague. It's the basis of sex. So if you don't know a bit of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's an easy entry point into her story. Jamila, what have you got for us? I believe you've got a bit of live shows we can go to. Live music and comedy are coming back to Melbourne in March at the Maya Music Bowl in 2021. Throughout March, we are going to see some of the biggest music and comedy acts. Spiderbait will be there, Bernard Fanning, Tommy Little, Hannah Gadsby, M. Rossiano, and Baruz Bachani is collaborating with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in a like I suppose a world first. This is so huge for live entertainment. It is, but for those of us, again, who would rather get our music in our ears than go out anywhere anymore, Tate, what will you be listening to? Kings of Leon are back. They have a new album out called When You See Yourself. It was released on Friday and it was their long-awaited eighth studio album, so it's been four years since their last body of work. That's it for today. The briefing will be back in your ears on Monday morning at 6am with Tom and Annika. Listener.
listener.